Good evening and thank you for joining us. Um, just to check, is everyone listening to me all right? Okay. <laughs> Tonight's event is brought to you by the Council of Supply Chain Management Professionals, the preeminent worldwide professional association dedicated to the advancement and dissemination of knowledge on supply chain management. The topic for this discussion is the recent, recently agreed trade and cooperation agreement, the so-called Brexit deal, between the UK and the European Union and its effect on supply chains. Provisionally in place since the 1st of January, and I say provisionally because it's yet to be ratified by the European Parliament, the effects of the TCA were immediately felt in businesses in the UK and the EU. The turbulence caused by the immediate implementation of trade barriers, where there had been none previously, is significantly affecting supply chains across the board, from automotive to shellfish. And those are symptoms of the UK changing its place in the global trade environment. But what the end picture will look like is still very uncertain. Discussing these points are two experts in the field of supply chain and supply chain management and trade. First, Len Pennett, UK President of the Council of Supply Chain Management Professionals and Managing Partner at the global consultancy Visagio. And joining him is David Hennig, the leading expert of, on the development of the UK trade policy post-Brexit and the director of the UK Trade Policy Project. In 2017, David co-founded the UK Trade Forum, which brings together UK trade policy experts to debate and analyze these issues. Tonight's conversation is being recorded. Those listening live can contribute your questions throughout the event via the chat box. Gentlemen, good evening and over to you. Thank you very much, Maria. And welcome, David. Whatever the discussion on Brexit, on its merits or otherwise, the fact of the matter is that the UK has left the European Union. On the 24th of December last year, both sides agreed to the terms of the new relationship articulated in the 1,250 page tome that is the Trade and Cooperation Agreement. It was the author Philip K. Dick who said, reality is that which, when you stop believing in it, doesn't go away. And so it is with Brexit and its consequences. Whatever its impact, they won't go away. Now, Philip K. Dick also said that it is sometimes an appropriate response to reality to go insane. And since the 1st of January, when the terms of the TCA began to come into effect, many would sympathise with that statement. Before we dive into the impacts of the TCA itself, I think we should start with uh, looking at the whole picture. Now, the last few years had already seen many changes in the global trade model, and many of those have been accelerated by the effects of the COVID pandemic last year. So starting the conversation, David, um, how do you see the nature of global and regional supply chains in that environment? How's it changing? Thank you, Len. Um, and yes, let's start at the at the global level. And in one sense, the answer is, of course, as we know, global value chains, regional value chains change by the day, by the hour, by the minute as companies change um, various approaches. But in another sense, what we've really seen in the big picture is a 20 to 30 year development of highly sophisticated global supply chains where we're accustomed to talking about this in say the automotive sector where 30,000 components make up one car coming from all around the world, potentially including services. But the way I look at it is that um, global supply chains and regional supply chains are now common and that many companies across all um, sectors, goods and services are now running their own supply chains. I, I rather regard Manchester United Football Club as a supply chain. Formula One racing is certainly a, a, you know, running a uh, running a supply chain, as are all the teams. And I mentioned those uh, those couple because when people uh, wonder about the impacts of Brexit on the UK, others would say, well, does the UK have these large companies running supply chains? Yes, we do, but not necessarily the ones that people would immediately think of. And the way I'm thinking of supply chains is that you have the, the lead companies who are driving those su supply chains, 
and their, and their logistics managers. And then they're opting to find uh, suppliers who either bring technical specialism uh, to them from around the world or cost-effective um, production, and it, could, and it could be either. And again, whether it's regarding the goods or services components, these companies can look around and um, you know, the, the information um, revolution really of the last 30 years allows large companies to look around to source the best uh, uh, components, products, services from around the world to combine into their product. That I think we, we know about. Um, but of course, they're in an enormous amount of competition as well. So they're constantly having to, uh, to look at that. So therefore, it's really, and I think I'm borrowing this now from, some, from somebody else who told me, it's really a whole grid of transactions going on, whole lots of products and services being recombined into new products and services um, around the world, a phenomenal amount of, uh, of trade going on, a growing amount of trade. And then against that backdrop, you've had in the last few years a little bit of a backlash against such a global system, which nobody really knows about. So it's a global system, but not a well-known global system. And you've got the backlash now across Europe, the US of varying people saying, bring back manufacturing, which in the context of a sophisticated global supply chain doesn't make a huge amount of sense. But in the context of people still understanding trade in the old ways, I build something, I sell it uh, uh, to another country makes a huge amount of sense. So, you know, I, I guess that, you know, there's two conversations going on here. There's the highly sophisticated uh, global supply chains uh, conversation. There's the, the members who are working in it. There's the logistics managers who are making the world go around. And then there's the political conversation, which is years away, which is still thinking of trade in 1990 as build something, sell it, sell it abroad bringing the two together is a huge challenge and what i think we'll see now in the next in the coming years and we can develop this is the two slightly moving together reality you start you started with the with reality reality at the moment is sort of um, in in economic and trading terms is a long way from what politicians think it is in particular in the uk and that's going to be something that's going to change in the uh, in the in the coming uh, in the coming years. Absolutely, um, I, I think it was something that someone told me uh, a little while ago that supply chains remain fluid; they adapt to the constraints, to the barriers that they see around them, and they, they work around it. They find ways forward, um, much as as water does, for example, in, 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 in getting around obstacles. And that's very important for what's been happening in world trade because. Until 2016, between 1995 approximately and 2016, trade barriers were coming down. So it was becoming easier for um, global supply chains. There were less barriers, less barriers to the water. Now, I think what you've seen since 2016 with Trump, for example, and now with, and with Brexit, is those barriers coming back up. And if you're a company running those, you're starting to think, OK, it's not just government starting to say, have we got re sufficient resilience in our supply chains? I think now companies need to look at them and say, hang on a minute, those were based on the idea that nobody would put up barriers, that we had a, a, an amount of certainty going on here. That certainty has now gone. Are our supply chains fit for a more uncertain age? Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is where we, where we come to. And I'm glad you, you, you phrased it like that. So as several people pointed out, Brexit is probably the first time that two ostensibly friendly trade partners have moved forward by erecting trade barriers where there previously were none. And that's come at a cost. Um, we've seen logistic flows head up at points of entry in Dover, in ports across the UK and Northwest um, European countries. We've seen entire industry sectors, most notably and publicly notably fisheries and especially shellfish, as Maria said in the introduction, suddenly finding themselves virtually excluded from EU markets. Now, the UK and the EU spent four years in discussions to shape the term. So why has that situation arisen? Well, politicians and officials are not entirely well up on their uh, on their on their global supply chains as it is. Um, look, in terms of um, bringing trade back, erecting trade barriers, we've seen nothing like this in the era of global supply chains. So, whereas we have seen trade barriers rise before, and people talk perhaps about uh, the ending of the uh, Soviet bloc in uh, 1990 through to 1992. 
there weren't such global supply chains. Perhaps there were a little bit within the, uh, the Soviet bloc, but nothing like on the same level. You know, it, 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 across the world in 1990, one factory would be doing huge amount of its own activities from service from uh, from services and uh, and marketing right the way through to making their own components and then fitting their own components into the into the final car. So since the era of the modern supply chain, which I would argue starts at that in, in, in the 1990s, no country has significantly put up trade barriers in the way that the UK has. So what does that, um, what does that look like? Well, in turn, obviously that means it's slightly experimental because we don't know what it looks like because nobody's done it before in the, in the modern age. It's quite an abrupt barrier. We've gone from an almost entirely permissive trading regime between the UK and the EU um, to one that's based on, around rules. So there's a lot of new restrictions put in place. It's a barrier to an awful lot of trade. It, the UK-US trade relationship, sorry, UK-EU trade relationship, is the second largest uh, globally after um, UK-EU. So this is a, a huge trading relationship worth nearly two billion pounds a day. It was worth that in 2019, perhaps a little bit less in 2020, and not just with the, the EU, uh, but also uh, with Switzerland, Norway, Turkey, countries which the EU has a close trading relationship with. So we've never seen in the modern age trade barriers put up in this way to global supply chains. All trade theory will tell us that more putting up barriers um, will affect trade, will constrain trade in different ways. And the early signs are that's exactly what has happened. Having said which, we've already seen trade flows between the EU and the UK flat since 2017. If you look at goods, imports and exports, 2017 to 2019, they are flat. They show no sign of growth between the EU and the UK, whereas the global norm at that point was growth. 2020 will be exceptional numbers in all, man, in all sorts of ways, and therefore it will be very hard to have a read across from 2020. The trend will be upset, but the trade was flat already. So we've seen already the first signs of unwinding of supply chains. We expect, based on what we've seen so far, it's been what, what have been the facets of what we've seen so far, the industries. These are the fast moving consumer goods sectors. Um, they're the most prone to, to checks, and frankly, they're the easiest to, they don't have huge investment levels. So um, the shellfish, the shellfish was being exported on, on you know, with, with virtually no um, equipment in, involved. So there's, there's hardly any investment either. You either, um, you know, harvest it and send it to, to France, or you don't. There's no, there's no machines running. There's no plant running. It's not like a an industrial process. And that's what we've seen um, in, in various other ways as, as, as well. Um, but yeah, we, we, we are putting, uh, we're putting new, new barriers in. That is going to have an effect. We've seen a little bit of it so far. I don't think we've seen uh, as nearly as much as there's going to be. Services elements of supply chains, we tend to talk only about the goods elements. The services elements are just as important. They are already disrupted because of COVID, because of the lack of travel. If my experience is anything to go by and when I speak to people, the first few months um, of not being able to travel won't have made a huge difference. The more recent few months will have made a difference. So in manufacturing, that could be, for example, the, uh, the marketing around new cars. It could be the research and development activities. Elements like that will, I suspect, have taken a hit, but we won't immediately see that. And that might then be picked up by within uh, within Brexit once um, when coming out of that, and we discover that, for example, uh, UK-based staff not able to uh, travel so easily, or uh, European-based staff not able to travel so easily to the UK. So there's a lot more to come on this. This is a, an adjustment process. You have a a kind of a short-term teething problems process. A lot of manufacturers are finding difficulties getting goods in and out as they did, not surprisingly. You then have a longer-term adjustment process uh, running alongside investment decisions, alongside bigger supply chain decisions, which is likely to play out over approximately five to 10 years. 
so on that, um, now the, the effects of COVID last year put a light on the arrangements that supply chains uh, had as a result of the globalization that we saw in the 90s and the 2000s. And a lot of that came from, uh, as you say, the growth in those international markets, the conditions that those markets offered the decision makers, whether it was direct financial incentives, whether it was um, cheaper labor, whether it was pools of skills and knowledge. Um, and as those economies have, have in basically enriched themselves and uh, the, so that that cost of labor delta has has vanished in a number of cases but there were there are still incentives to to keep those uh, operations there one of the biggest issues though with those long supply chains historically particularly in the manufacturing and the engineering sector has been um, the management of quality um, which touches your point about the service side. To be able to maintain that quality, you need people to go out and make sure that the, uh, the standards are being applied, that there is a continuous improvement culture and so on and so forth. Um, so many have questioned now in this new, new reality that we're in post-COVID, that maintaining these long supply chains doesn't make sense, that it's no longer sustainable. And that's before we start talking about sustainability, which is another effect. Um, so as a result, many supply chains are looking to shorten those lines. And as a result of the TCA, UK supply chains are now considering their options. What do you see as the prospects of the UK increasing reshoring following the pandemic and following the TCA as well? That's about four questions <laughs> in one. Let's look at the, the shortening of supply chains globally first. Look, you still have, if you are the uh, the, the 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 lead um, the lead company on this, you still have that full choice that you've got. What I think happened between 1990 and 2010, but accelerates considerably between 2000 and 2010, is that Chinese factories, in particular, offer you an unbeatable, unrepeatable combination of quality and low cost for production, um, and. Um, that's what they really put their efforts into. I, you know, I, I think you could argue that only the Chinese really understood the era of global, um, global supply chains and what was needed at that time. Now, subsequently, you can make the argument that others have caught up or offered themselves around that China is first, but is never going to be uh, the only one. So both within that region, countries like um, Vietnam, but equally um, Around Europe, um, you know, we have seen greater production in Poland or in Turkey that other countries are realizing the, uh, you know, the possibilities of doing that or Mexico for the, uh, for the US, that they have been important regionally, but only China was important in the global sense. And now will those um, larger regional uh, parts of the supply chain um, have opportunities to grow as compared to, to China, which is probably anticipating some of this because it's also looking to grow its domestic markets. Well, there's there's a million individual decisions to be made within that. Certainly, I think the large companies will look to uh, make sure that they have greater control over their supply chains, having seen some of the issues. On the other hand, you take if you, you know, you take a risk by, let's say, moving away from China, which has this brilliant cost quality uh, ratio to a, another country that might not. So there are reasons not to do it as well. Um, these, are, these are individual decisions. I suspect the move um, towards shortening of supply chains is not going to be as major as is being made out. I suspect it will be there. I think we can see the, the, obvious, the obvious trends, but it's countered by the fact that companies still want to remain competitive as well now what about the uk where does the uk fit within that well um in a lot of ways for what we are producing sort of our home base companies what is it that the uk offers and arguably our home base it's not the manufacturing element so whether you take Formula One, Manchester United, universities. We have some car companies here, of course, J J JLR, uh, JCB would be, a, would be another example. But in many cases, they can produce quite effectively in other countries, and they do, and they already have done, and they feel they have sufficiently uh, established production facilities elsewhere that they can maintain the, the quality. Will they want to bring um, 
manufacturing back to the UK? I can't see that. I can't see, in most cases, again, generalisation, one or two, I'm sure, will. But in many cases, that doesn't make much sense. The, the UK is now a weaker place to put your manufacturing because mm -hmm. you've got the prospect, the barriers just continue. There's no, the, there's no reason why the barriers um, reduce now to, uh, to the European market and the global market, well... Global, as I keep saying, global competition means, uh, sorry, global sales mean global competition. And why wouldn't you put it closer, the gl global, uh, why wouldn't you put your manufacturing close to your market? But again, there will be some. But I think you know, the way I've always thought it was that Brexit actually strengthens UK services over UK manufacturing because hosting things in the UK, hosting the, uh, you know, the, the branding, the research and development makes still makes a lot of sense, although there is a labor market problem potentially. Making stuff, the more you make, the more you have to transport around Europe, mm -hmm. perhaps, the more problems you run into. There's a lot of reason why you would say, okay, we will maintain the, the control of the, the company from the UK, let's say, but we'll only do limited amount of manufacturing here. If, if any, we'll do a lot of manufacturing around Europe or elsewhere. So it makes the UK potentially a stronger services and investment um, um, exporter and weaker potentially for goods. Now, the problem with that in turn is that that goes against what the UK government is hoping. They want to make more here. And you still do have manufacturing in the UK. You still have uh, FMCG, um, very safe, you know, safety, safety critical and imme immediate food. And that, that will still be the case. Um, but I think overall the balance suggests um, manufacturing potentially reduces in the UK. I think there's some element of makeup on, on, on services, but also we probably see slightly less trade um, in the UK or perhaps increases at lower volumes. If I mean we were already seeing trade not either not increase in the same volumes or be flat, a lot of that is because China is no longer trading so much; it's producing and consuming more, so it's slightly distorted figure. Um, but yeah, the UK that there are barriers now. There are more barriers to UK trade. Therefore, all logic says there's going to be less trade, and it's going to be less trade where the barriers are potentially higher. That is in manufacturing as well, also for services. It is difficult because for services for people who need visas to come here, but some parts of services, like what we're doing at the moment, talking, can easily be done um, over the over the the internet. You can have your specialists doing uh, doing things in the UK, transferring various ideas mm -hmm. into into other countries. So there are elements that are less affected, and you would expect those elements of the UK to remain stronger than those elements which are more affected, like the manufacturing. So that's the that, that's the the rough expectation. That's what I think we're already starting to see. But also, it won't be absolute. It doesn't mean the entirety of manufacturing leaves the UK tomorrow. And I think you, you know, we, we have these exaggerated expectations. Um, you know, manufacturing, may um, manufacturing trade may decline by a, 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 a certain percentage. It doesn't all disappear. No, and I, I think you're right. The, the idea that the UK is suddenly going to swallow everything that we did abroad is just that's a non-starter, but there are some areas that we do have a, a significant competence in. Um, but likewise, places like China, like India also have scale, which means that they've got a completely different operating economic model, uh, which means that they're always going to be attractive. We've seen this uh, even in the US, which had the, uh, the, 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 the Trump agenda for the last four years, uh, a lot of American uh, uh, supply chains ended up with a China plus one model uh, in, the, in the last few months. So they've kept some of that um, base in China. They've just diversified to um, to reduce the risk that they're exposed to. Um, now, there are initiatives in the UK. Reshore UK has, has pulled together um, a, a wealth of expertise, a wealth of knowledge to try to build up, to try to get uh, decision makers to consider the UK as a, a as a base for um, supply, as a base for manufacturing. But the reality is we don't have everything. It took China 25 years to get to where it was in 2010 um, with the scale that it had with a command economy as well, uh, which the, the UK, I don't think, <laughs> has at, 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 at the moment. We're a much more, a much freer, a much more dynamic economy and a much more dynamic uh, political leadership 
compared to that, um, to be able to build up that capability, build up that competence, because it does need a systematic approach. It's not just a case of investing money or having financial incentives. You're talking about training a workforce. You're talking about building up um, that workforce, as you say, bringing in expertise through the service side, uh, as well as having, um, having the economics that warrant that decision in the first place. Um, now, I mentioned earlier that the, the stories about the interruptions that we've seen um, uh, have certainly hit the headlines. And one statistic that came out in January um, in the, the immediate aftermath was a 68% drop in exports from the UK to the EU. And even if we deduct from that the obvious effects of companies having stockpiled in advance of the TCA coming into effect, that's still a significant fall. On the other hand, UK imports lots of raw materials and parts from the EU as well as other parts of the world. So why are we not seeing the immediate impacts on a lot of manufacturing uh, yet? I don't think we know the answer, actually. I don't think we know what is happening hmm. with, manu with manufacturing. The, a lot of the, the, fa the falling numbers seem to relate again to food products, um, manufacturing isn't parts aren't, and uh, aren't necessarily um, transported in the in the same way. Some are. Some might be transported in uh, in other ways in unaccompanied loads. We know there's been a fall in um, use um, of the UK by Irish um, lorries going through to uh, going through to France. They have direct routes now, so you know, and, and there was some stockpiling, and there's all against the backdrop of COVID. So. I'm not. I'm anticipating it'll be a number of months before we really get a good sense of what's happening with UK EU traffic. And so many misleading, uh, misleading comments. There may be freight numbers, maybe lorry numbers as normal, but some of them are running empty, or they may not be lorry numbers as normal. If, for example, a large number um, of Irish lorries are no longer coming this way, mm -hmm. I just think it's. I just think it's too early. I'm not drawing any uh, any great conclusions um as as yet uh because there are there are a number of numbers going around and um i've not i've not seen any sort of anything that i think yes methodologically that looks right and i'll go with those numbers so at the moment i'm treating them all with a large pinch of salt okay <laughs> so we've looked at the past we've looked at the present let's look a little bit about the immediate future we we know that many of the implications of the tca came active on the first of january but not all did so what are some of the changes that are still to come later this year and over the next couple of years that some of the you know, decision makers in, in supply chains need to be prepared for? Well, the UK currently is not actually fully um, um, uh, implementing uh, checks coming on, on products coming in. So that'll happen uh, by July the 1st. We haven't really seen any divergence as yet between UK and EU regulations. We may see that the UK has only just left a number of uh, European regulatory bodies, such as on aviation safe, aircraft safety, or um, on um, in 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 other areas. Reach, for example, um, we're still to work to learn exactly how, for example, in the future, the UK is going to um, implement chemicals regulations. Let's say. We're still part of um, BSI, BSI is part of the European standardization uh, framework. We don't know if that will survive. So I think for the manufacturing supply chain, a lot of questions actually about how, um, about how the UK will take this forward, whether there will be changes. It seems to me that um, business has been trying to lobby government to say, please don't change very much actually. We don't want change. We want to stay relatively aligned with Europe, that will enable us to trade more. Um, so that's uh, that's more on the good side. And I think on the services side, there are issues um, around, obviously, movement of people. Will the UK keep exactly the same uh, visa regime or will there be relaxations where we need them? How will work permit systems work? Will they work particularly well? How strictly will they be enforced? I think there's a lot still to see. And I think if you're making decisions about the UK as a base for supply chains in the future, you need to see some of this play out. You need to see whether if you've got problems, you're going to be um, able to resolve them or whether they're going to stay as problems. I just don't think we know enough as yet 
um, about the way things are going to work. So I think we're, we're still waiting and seeing a little bit on that. Okay. Um, well, the, the, the UK government has made a big play throughout the post-Brexit referendum uh, period to say that Brexit offers the country a glorious opportunity to be an even greater player in international trade. We've, we've seen the official application to, uh, to CPTPP, uh, which seems to be going ahead without a referendum as well. Um, but how, how do you see the, the role of the UK in global trade changing in this post-TCA um, world? And, and what are the likely trends for supply chains as a result of that? Well, I mean, I, I, I think that CPTPP, I don't see it very much in supply chain uh, terms. It's a very thin trade agreement anyway, like the, uh, like the TCA. But the point being that most supply chains remain uh, relatively regional. I can't see why the UK would suddenly become part of um, pan-Pacific, pan-Asian uh, supply chains. What we add to that, the CPTPP is weak on services, our strong area. So it doesn't really open up any new doors for, for services for how the UK is going to sell them. So I think that really, by and large, the CPTPP is a very minor um, or very minor importance to the development of UK uh, s supply chains. I think that it's far more important the way that um, what we're going to do with services, what we're going to do with regulations, the, what we're going to do with work permits and visas than joining the CPTPP, which it seems to me is of very little um, significance at all. And then, as I, you know, I, I, I think, how are we going to interact with, with Europe? Are we going to try to resolve problems with, with European um, trade or not? I think if I'm, if I'm uh, looking at my supply chain now um, and thinking about the UK, I'm not thinking, oh, great, they're going to join CPTPP because I'm probably producing, I've probably got supply chains in that region. I'm looking and saying, are they going to take seriously when I have a problem trading to Europe or not? Are they going to take my view seriously if they try and change regulations on mm -hmm. aircraft or chemicals or whatever or not? So that's what I'm that's what I'm interested in. CPTPP, it seems to me, is a is a diversion. You will have a you know, it can encourage a certain amount of point to point trade, but that point to point trade um, is a small percentage of of global trade. And that's why the numbers for new trade agreements are very low. Mm -hmm. If the order 0.1% of GDP at best, probably less, because they, they help a little bit. And there's a little bit more trade that can be um, eased or encouraged, but it's not a lot. No, and when I when I did the, the, the sums looking at how much the UK trades with each of the members of the CPTPP put together, that's less than what we do with just Germany at the moment, um, which really does put it in, in, in into some sort of scale. Um, that notwithstanding, the, the only way the UK is going to grow itself uh, in this in this post TCA world is through exports. That's that's been a big push, um, but it's not new. And I don't need to tell you this. You had a, a hand in, in setting up the, uh, the the Department of International Trade. Um, now, there have been several programs. I, I can go back 30 years. I can think of successive government departments and successive programs to do this. And yet for much of the last 20 years, UK exports have largely remained flat. So what should companies and their supply chains do differently if they are to have a chance of success this time? Companies and um, supply chains are doing fine. The ones that are, in, in, that are, that are, uh, that, are that are existing, um, I think, you know, they've, they've got their, they've got their, ex their export markets. You know, I, I think we, we need more companies to be to be doing that. In a word, we need services. We need to be really working on our uh, on, on the on the varying um, on on various services um, exports. I mean, I think that when we think about these export drives, we think again about individual products. We don't think of well, how are we going to fit into um, how are we going to fit into supply chains? How is my product going to fit into um, a supply chain. You, you ask yourself, you know, how is my, is my product going to fit into a supply chain if I do a trade deal with Chile? Well, probably not. There's probably not many mm. Chilean uh, supply chains that we want to form form a part of. You know, how are we going to fit in? Are we going to be able to um, attract new and in, new investments? You know, are we? Could we become? Could we have expertise in uh, distribution networks? 
can we develop new expertise? We, we, we are very good at services. How can we sell more of these services um, to, to, other, to other countries? I'd be looking at that, at excellence in selling services. I just think that services are wildly um, under, uh, 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 underappreciated mm. by UK government. Probably over half of our exports are services. Once you include the services elements of the goods manufacturing that we, we do, even without that, it's about 45%. Um, some of it is because people come here like for their university degrees, but a lot of it is sales from the, from the, uh, from the UK. So if you're looking at greater exports, what services can we sell? And it's not just financial services. We're you know, strong in so many different areas from fashion, retail, retail games, um, mm -hmm. Small space. Dis dis distribution, whatever it is, we're strong in services. So if I'm saying, how is the UK going to be better? I'm so, uh, you know, in it, my initial thought is, uh, how am I going to sell more services? I think we need to do more work. I think I want to see the government doing more work on how we would sell more services, not how we sell more goods. But, you know, you say there's been a number of initiatives for 20 years. I've never seen a many initiatives apart from financial services. Uh, I've never seen initiatives that say, how are we going to sell more services? Even in food and drink products, a lot of the value is in the branding value that we can that we can offer. Because what's the difference between one type of biscuit and another biscuit? A lot of it is in the brand the brand value valuation. We need to do a lot more with services. Is my my long winded and short answer. <laughs> Excellent, David. Thank you very much, uh, Maria. I think we've had some questions in, have we? No. Uh, yes, yes, we do. Um, do you think should we wrap it up um, and move on to the questions? I think so. Let's let's um, yeah, let's go for the, the first question anyway. And if anyone's got any other questions, please use the chat box to uh, to submit them in. Yes. Uh, first of all, thank you. It was a fantastic discussion, and it's clear that the number and scale of the impacts from the the TCA are still emerging, and that supply chains are not are a long way from stability. Um, so yeah, we do have questions. The first one uh, is, uh, as a medium-sized business, what can I do to alleviate the increased burdens from customs and excise? I'll go first, and I'll, I'll, David, I'll get your, your views. So uh, I think there are a number of things that you can do. The first one is understand the rules. And I totally get that this is a complicated document. There are complicated implications that uh, are, are, are yet to be understood. Um, questions of rules of origin um, mean that you need to understand what it is that you make, what it is that you do, uh, where the value add is in, in your production. Um, there are a number of specialist organizations that you can go to, to, to help you with that industry bodies as well. Um, the, um, uh, make UK and the Federation of small businesses are, are but two. Um, the, the other thing is, is as your you know, your medium sized company is look at automation as well. Some of the, um, processes that you're going to have to adapt to can be automated. Uh, and there are lots of scalable tools nowadays to do that. Um, and, and ultimately, you're, it, it's get you as a, a, um, as part of that uh, improving yourself uh, to whatever the next phase of of um, the operating model we're heading to is going to be is is looking at where your competence lies and look at the there are so many options at the moment without going into your own specific um, situation more deeply um we've seen some organizations move their operations to the eu um directly to to get around the barriers we've some seen some um change their procurement bases um, an awful lot of them accelerating digital transformation to, to try to reduce costs, but improve the resilience that they've got in, in supply chains. Um, David, any, any, anything else to add? I, you know, from, from my point of view, and I'm thinking more about the politics now uh, and, the and the trade policies. The first question here is, is this something that basically I just need to get used to mastering the, 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 the forms and the new realities? Or is it something that could change in the future, which is to say that there is just something, there's some check or some, some, something where if it was changed between the UK and the EU, I'd do a lot better. Because if it's the second one, then you need to be thinking, how do I let um, officials, politicians know, can we do something about it? If it's the first one, it's more a case of cost. How much can I, can I absorb? How long is this going to take to get up to, uh, to get up to a, a spec? Um, 
up up to to speed with what I need to do that's that's different. So you know it's not necessarily easy to work out is this is this is this now permanent. But I think that's I think that's what you've got to do. I mean, clearly, you know, official government advice would say, can I look at other can I look at other markets? But the chances are, um, other markets already have the same thing. So I suppose the other part of it is if I export to, now, if I carry on exporting to the EU and I look, master this, will that help to then to export on the same basis to other markets? It might, it might not. We can't be uh, we can't be sure. But in general, what we can also say is it's not going back to how it was. So there's no there's no return to um, uh, absolutely seamless trade between the UK and EU. So um, in some way, it is going to involve change. Yes. And, and worth adding as well that uh, on the 9th of March, we've got another um, impact on the supply chain of the, the TCA event uh, with um, uh, Raymond Nicodem, and we'll be looking at this topic in a lot more detail as well, talking about what the rules of origins are, talking about uh, the whole value adding process that has an, a direct impact on um, potentially shaping different uh, different supply chain models, but more importantly, the economics that you're going to be facing in, in, in your business. Excellent. Next question. Um, so Carrie sent us, uh, so I'm a, I'm a CEO of a trade body whose 500 plus members are bearing the costly brunt of transition changes. Loss of businesses and confidence in the UK is monumental and will sadly take some businesses under. Whilst the government have now stepped up with more sector specific advice, where is the promised promotion for UK business by government? Well, look, I, I mean, I think this is going to be a problem for, you know, for the coming for the coming months. And it is going to require um, a little bit of a fuss being being made. We're in a process where the politics have come ahead of the business uh, and and the economics. And it is not that's not going to change unless businesses make a make a fuss and say, look, this is what you've done. This is what we need. Please accept that, you know, the barriers are now up. We can't just easily start selling to South Korea or somewhere else. We need assistance. We need you to get on to get on top of that. I can't offer anything more than that. We've had a great conversation here about the realities. And then we get back to, well, the UK government isn't really following the realities. The only way to do that is to keep plugging away and saying, this is what we need um, over time. This is, you know, this is what you, the government, need to be doing. Yes, and it's, I, I, I had vowed um, before the session that I was going to try to keep away from politics, but you do bump up against it in this conversation. Um, the, 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 there has been so much talk about the agreements that we've got so far that the uh, that DIT have signed, but it's, most of those are roll-ons of existing trade agreements, uh, and none of them have been particularly strategic just yet. And in fact, the biggest one, uh, which is the the, the EU agreement, um, is still being shaped. And uh, as Maria said at the beginning, it's still not been ratified yet. We still need to bear this in mind that things can still change even in the few weeks before that ratification date next month. Um, the, the, the promotion that DIT has been doing, the Export is Great campaign has been running. But what we've also started to see now is a greater um, relationship between the UK's desires and the promotion of trade and more importantly as well with international aid as well, which is another big enabler and something that is a soft power tool that the UK has historically been very good at, but that's changed in the last five years. Guys, can I just break protocol here? Because I'm listening to this and Please, you know, I know we've only got nine people on here and uh, I'm sitting in my, my office shed in the back garden looking at all. <laughs> I'm sitting here looking at a customs presentation I'm doing to 500 people tomorrow. Another one on Monday, one the next day, the next day. We've got some really, really big challenges, I think, with this Um We've got a lot of legislation that's coming into force um, as we push forward. And I kind of I listen, listen to what you guys have said. And I, I'm really with it. And part of the reason I've dialed into this day is, is because what we're seeing is lots of repetitive issues going on with business and supply chains overall. We are not going to be getting the business that we expected in the coming year. Um, UK confidence is really, really gone because we cannot deliver. There's so many issues. And I think part of the reason for raising the issue about um, 
the DIT thing is that they are not coming forthcoming with help that we need now as businesses. So we've gone off and self-sourced a whole lot of EU VAT information to help these guys trade because we're getting blocked, carrier problems, all sorts of stuff is going on. So I think it, part of the reason for raising that was just to say, we need our government to do the job. We're lobbying. We've had a question that's gone up to Prime Minister's question time as well on this. Um, we're constantly lobbying. We're lobbying through Bayes, DCMS, everybody that we can possibly speak to. And we're probably providing evidence about four or five times a week, those government departments. They nod, they say yes, and they take it forward. But the reality is private businesses bearing the brunt of this agreement that they knew was going to cost everyone a lot of money. It's just really, really painful to see what's happening to British business at this point because DIT said that they would be putting Britain business first and they're kind of not so anyway I'm gonna that was my my mini rant because I've had a, I've honestly my phone hasn't stopped ringing since about 29th of December that's all it's like Brexit 101 help line. it's been absolutely horrendous for everyone so people are getting used to it and it is starting to settle down and it is here to stay however we must recognize the supply chain we've got major shortages you've got paper shortages going on costs are going up <laughs> and if we don't start to recognize and start talking about them on a much greater level everyone is going to catch a cold because we're not we're just not seeing it coming so i think the trade bodies you know we're urging governments to do much more work with us uh, so we can help so anyway that's my rant over and i will leave you to continue <laughs> well, Thank well you. That, i mean but i but i you know i agree and we are you know i you know, as somebody who has a bit of a platform to this and a little bit of a bully pulpit, I say this at every single opportunity that I have to, to say that there are, there are real problems and to say that nobody seems to be paying any attention. And beyond that and beyond keeping saying it, I think that's the only I'm afraid that's the only way we can we can do this is to just keep saying it, keep saying this is what a this is what's happening. B, this is the nature of trade and business. And I think that's an important part of this as well is the sort of, you know, to say the official line that, you know, just or just just sell to, to you know, somewhere else. That's not the reality of modern business. So keep plugging away. And I'm afraid we've all got we've all got a responsibility um, to keep plugging away on this. Yes, and uh, uh, exactly right. And we, we said at the beginning that supply chains adapt and they will invariably adapt. It's probably going to take 12 months until we get to whatever the steady state is. Um, but the reality is, is we're going to be more expensive to do business with and to do business ourselves. And that has implications. Uh, and the earlier that, that that recognition comes from our elected representatives and our trade bodies to really shake the cage and wake people up, uh, the better prepared we're going to be for that for that uh, that, okay. that next world that we're going to live in. Absolutely, thanks, guys. Appreciate it. And I think you know this, and this is what we're here for. And um, we're very passionate about what we're doing. We're very passionate about making sure our business have uh, our members have business to go to. And um, I think having, I'm literally just looking at survey results that we've been collecting over the last couple of weeks on a weekly basis. And you know we're running into the millions of lost business. And I think after a very mm -hmm. very hard year. It's very painful to see. And I think, you know, where we're hanging on to see that light at the end of the tunnel, thankfully Boris's announcement, oh, sorry, our dear Prime Minister's announcement last night was good. Um, I think there is still a lot of scepticism about what we do. So what we really hope is people can hang on in there and find new avenues and we're helping them do that. So yeah, we absolutely play an integral part. So thank you for answering my question, listening to my rant. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Kerry. And you, you actually sent in another point, which I should have added about uh, to that first question um, about where to get help. Um, there are several uh, funded customs training programs that the gov and government grants that are available for that. Uh, the Institute of Export has some very, very good courses as well. So mm -hmm. I, I'd encourage uh, particularly smaller businesses to, uh, to have a look at those. Maria, any other last questions? I think we've got time for one more. So, yes. Um, the next one here is you've painted a pretty bleak picture for UK supply chains what opportunities do you see for them David do you want to go first well, I mean I, I like like I said I think that it is it is a difficult picture I think that but the point is that there where we have our strengths in uh, in, in supply chains you know we don't lose the strengths um, and so where we have particular niche specialisms, uh, of which we have many in, in across services, but we also have many in, in, in high-end manufacturing. We will keep those. They may have to be um, delivered in, in different ways, potentially, but we, but we keep them. And I think that, you know, the reason for optimism is that we are a big economy. We do have lots of strengths. We do have adaptability, and we adapt from the models that we have at the moment, where perhaps 
you you know we're we're make, we're making things that perhaps we're not the most competitive in, and we move to things we're more competitive in. So. Economics and Trade 101 says that actually what happens in this kind of scenario is that some of the more marginal activities that we were doing that we perhaps weren't best suited for with regard to Europe, perhaps we stopped doing those and we do more things that we're suited for. That's not great for the people who are, say, making the widgets that no longer are, are so competitive. But, you know, and that's why you need government assistance as well over the medium term to actually say, well, actually, we should be doing things that we're more specialist in. Anyway, that's the reason for optimism is there's plenty that we're good at. And it's a case of can we um, you know, do more trade? Can we find the ways to um, to do more of what we're of what we're good at, overcome the barriers, um, even if you know we may lose? I and mean, I think we will inevitably lose some some business. But can we? You know, can we keep that under control? I think those those are key questions, but it's not all it's not all doom and gloom for the UK. We're still a major economy. Yes, and I think I'll bring two stories here. So last year we all saw the the headlines of the runs on toilet papers and supermarkets, and everybody thought we were going to have shortages. And actually, supermarkets, particularly in the UK, responded very quickly. They changed their entire way their supply chains were arranged. Uh, they changed their operating procedures as well. And actually, one of the big successes is that we didn't have empty shelves last year, despite the fact that we were all buying more food. We were going to the supermarkets for uh, uh, more trips, and and they were having to deal with online orders um, with almost an order of magnitude more than they had done previously. Uh, also, around about March, we, also, we, we saw the stories about the shortages of ventilators, and we saw UK businesses coming together in consortia that were completely unprecedented, changing their manufacturing to be able to produce ventilators from a standing start to an end in a matter of weeks. Those two things, even three months beforehand, would have been unimaginable. And I think last year did prove that given the need, it's amazing what businesses can do to adapt. We've now got another catalyst in, this, in the Brexit world. And as we said with Kerry, yes, we are going to be operating in a more expensive environment. There are going to be these trade barriers that we've now got with our biggest trade partner. Um, we are still sorting out finding our feet in the rest of the world because we were ripped out of 70 odd other international trade agreements, not counting the other um, uh, the other agreements we've got with countries uh, around the world. But supply chains, as I said at the beginning, are fluid. We, they tend to adapt. And uh, now that we know, given last year, that we can adapt very quickly when needs must, I think that opportunity is going to come through there. We're going to see uh, transformations. We're going to see the use of um, tools. We're going to see a drive to capability, breaking down silos within organizations far more quickly than we ever would have done before. Excellent. Maria, I think that's been, that's been great. Um, I'll hand it back to you. So yeah, I think that's all the time we have. <laughs> Thank you all uh, who sent in a question and I'm sorry we couldn't get to everyone. Um, but on behalf of uh, CSCMP and Visagio, I'd like to thank David Hennig for your invaluable insights into this thorny issue. Um, if you'd like to find out more about the impacts of the TCA on supply chain, our next discussion, as Len mentioned, is, uh, will happen on 9th of March when we'll be joined by trade and corporate advisor, Raymond Nicodem, who find up, and if in case you would like to find out more, please uh, go to our website, cscmp.org, or you can follow our Twitter feed, cscmpuk, on our LinkedIn, uh, the cscmpuk group. Thank you all. Thank you for joining us and goodbye, good night. Mm-hmm. <laughs>